Please enjoy this celebration of the life and career of Dory Monson. You're listening to the best of the Dory Monson Show. I still wake up every morning. You're the first thing to cross my mind. I still smell your sweet perfume in the early afternoon. And that mountain wind comes blowing through the pines. You're the only thing around here I'm holding on to. Cause my heart won't, no, my heart won't, no, my heart just won't stop loving you. I can't well, you are listening to the music of Modern West, a song called Won't Stop Loving You, and Modern West is fronted by one of the greatest actors of our lifetime. And that's Kevin Costner, who joins us, I think this is the first time ever, on the Dory Monson Show. Kevin, what a pleasure to have you on. Thank you. I, uh, I want to talk about Yellowstone. I know that starts its new season. That is such a great show, man. It starts new season a week from Sunday, the 21st, on the Paramount Network. But since I've never talked to you before, Kevin, i got a lot of ground to cover with you, including... Right, uh, I always go. like to... Okay, let's go. I like extracting life lessons from really successful people. And from what I know about you, you get your college degree at Cal State Fullerton. Go Titans. You you had kind of a safe life. Might have been a nice middle-class life. Got your business degree. You were kind of dabbling in acting. And then you met somebody who really changed the course of your life. Can Can you tell me a little bit about that? I think you're talking about Richard Burton, and um, yeah, yeah there's, there's this moment in time when, when a lot of us are just trying to figure out where is the yellow brick road, you know, where is it, and uh, you know, and, and and for you, it had, maybe it was music, maybe you're exactly right where you want to be, maybe there's something else that's out there, but I was kind of wandering, I was a, like a, a a rat in a maze chasing the cheese. I went to college, I did all that stuff that you're, you're supposed to do. But none of it was speaking out loud to me. And I knew, as I traced the breadcrumbs of my life backwards, I knew that I had been writing poetry, playing classical piano. I knew music. I knew entertaining, telling stories was something. But coming out of a blue-collar background, I never translated it that that's how a guy could make a living. I thought the people that were on the screen were, like, born on the screen. That, you know, and... But there came this moment where I had to kind of shake loose of this very conservative uh, way I grew up and said, wait a second, everything's possible for me. And as long as it is authentic, as long as it's really my own heartbeat that's telling me to do it. And that's how I started conducting my life. And it's uh, taken me places that never would have happened had I gone down that whatever you want to call traditional or conventional way of living. That, That scared me more than anything. And, you know, I was not afraid of work. I've worked since I was 16. I, you know, I've driven trucks. I've framed houses. I worked commercial fishing boats. So blue-collar work, to me, is something I still do. And and his advice was, you can't just dabble in it. you got to jump in with both feet and just put all your heart and soul into it? You know, I've never told anybody what he told me. I... Um, and I, so I kind of just keep that to myself. 
but it was an interesting moment because he could have done just the exact opposite, which is it was we met on a plane, and he could have just said, hey, look, I'm sitting here. He actually bought the four seats around him so no one could talk to him, but kind of like the mongoose who plays with the cobra, I didn't know. I just went up to talk to him. He could have completely <laughs> laid me out, if you will. I mean, the whole plane was dying to know why the hell I even had walked up there. But I was really searching my soul at that moment, and I saw him as somebody that I thought I could talk to. And so uh, the big regret is uh, he never has seen me, you know, in the movies. Yeah, that does take guts. What, I mean, what was inside of you that said, I'm going to walk into this cone of, of secrecy with all the empty seats? That's amazing to me. Yeah, I don't know. I, I tell you what, when you're kind of, I mean, once you kind of are feeling something, it's almost you don't have that fear. You know, you want to have a level of respect, but there was just something that I had to get up uh, because it was like, you know, you know, when you're in the, I grew up as a Baptist, you know, in church, and there, you know, you're always feeling like the preacher's talking to you. And I'm looking at this guy in the plane, and I'm sitting here trying to make this kind of big decision in my life. Do I go this direction? And there he's sitting, and I don't know what possessed me. You know, it's like somebody pushed a button in me, and I hypnotically walked up there. So um, did, that did, was a moment. Did the, um, was yeah. a quiet one. Did, did the Baptist in you tell you that uh, God put him there in your presence for a reason or vice versa? I, didn't, I, didn't, I don't walk it back that way, but I feel like there's, there's almost no mistakes out there. Um, you know, you can, you can pray, you can do whatever you want to do in your life, but you're, you're also the person that has to get up in the morning and work at what you do. Um, you know, uh, I hope there's somebody... Uh, looking over my life. Uh, I, somebody's had to be because I've had a pretty blessed life and my 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 children are safe. I'm safe. Um, it can't be because I'm just a charming person. I think there's a, I think there's a, I do, I do think there's something that covers my life. I, I do, I do feel that. We're talking with Kevin Costner, who's made just some of the seminal movies of, of our time. Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, the, the two greatest baseball movies ever made. My producer, Nicole, says The Bodyguard is the best movie ever made. And, and now, oh, oh, one other thing before I get to Yellowstone. Uh, when I'm turning, you know, flipping around on the TV, Kevin, one of the movies I can't flip past, Bull Durham's on the list, Field of Dreams is on the list. Air Force One is on the list. And I didn't realize until I was prepping to talk to you today that that Air Force One was written for you. Well, they asked is that me right? to do it. Yeah, they, yeah. and, um, and I, just, um, I just thought, you know what? I'm, uh, I, why don't you give it to Harrison? You know, I, I didn't, <laughs> you know, didn't speak out loud to me. You know, I didn't speak out. I've never been sorry about that. And he was really good in it. But I, that that kind of thing doesn't doesn't uh, doesn't. I don't lose any sleep over that stuff. Well, you've had too much success to have regrets like that. I would think. Okay, and then how smart are you? Because you know now we're in a time the world's gone crazy. Movie theaters aren't even surviving. And there was a time, decade two decades ago, when movie stars didn't do TV, but 
you, one of the biggest movie names in the world, you did Yellowstone on the Paramount Network. Is that a leap of faith, or were there some other creative issues that that made you realize this is the right vehicle on the right platform at the right time? Well, yeah, it, you know, anybody can look back and, you know, you know, trying to, like I say, trace the breadcrumbs of your life. You never know if you're doing something right. This is the second time I've done TV. I did Hatfields and McCoys. And uh, likewise on Hatfield McCoys, just like Yellowstone, for instance, I made a concept record about how I was feeling during during it. It was called Famous for Killing Each Other. And, and um, I try to chase writing. And when I made uh decided to do tales from yellowstone um you know part of how i prepare for that is to with my band i start writing music about it uh, about the different characters about how i might be feeling during the making of it the last three years so the uh, record we have coming out on friday which is the 19th uh is called tales from yellowstone and it's just a concept record of everything that I've been thinking while making this about it's about the characters it's it's uh, music cues that are played in the show and and of course Yellowstone comes out on Father's Day the 21st but on the 19th Tales from Yellowstone comes out and so if anybody's interested at all about how I go about doing my work um, if they see that record they'll understand um, and what about about the characters about how I was feeling. You, you you used the word blessed a little bit earlier. I can't imagine being, a, you're just a couple of years older than me. I can't imagine being at a place in life where you can play the music you want, do the projects you want. Uh, I, I can't imagine that there's a better definition of contentment. And the, and that's that's what I seem to be hearing as I talk to you here. Well, I tell you for sure, Dory, that... that, that, that um that is the myth sometimes that you get everything you want. I still have these dreams and they don't fall into the conventions of what people want me to do, but they stand uh, clearly for me what I want. And I have to push those uphill to get them over. I can do a lot of things that people want me to do, you know, kind of repeat the same success or do something. But I always feel like my relationship with an audience is about a level of surprise and kind of like having a secret, you know, uh, uh, you know, that secret. I read the best book last night. Now I'm going to tell you about it. I heard the best song yesterday. Now I'm going to tell about it. I have these kind of stories in my head, whether they're four minutes long songs, like Won't Stop Loving You, or they're a you know, four-hour Western or about something else. I feel like I have this chance all the time to share something that kind of can be something someone if you do it right, won't ever forget. And we know that movies are made up of moments like that. So many movies we do don't always work that way, but some, they are about moments that you'll never, ever forget. And I have those those things in my head, and the idea that I can just do whatever I want, it's not really true. So anybody out there thinking about it, I have to push it uphill because there are people who want me to do things that I and it feels like everything I seems a little bit too hard for people but i can't let that kind of kill the dream so even now there are things that i want i got some secrets that um i want people to ultimately see and the only way they're going to ever see it is if i don't let go of it 
Well, I would love to have you back on any time and hear about those stories in your head that, that have yet to come to fruition. And, Kevin, just on a personal note, man, I mean, Bull Durham, Field of Dreams, Dances with Wolves, uh, I just can't tell you how much a fan and how how huge those movies were in my uh, in my 20s and my 30s. Uh, you are... You're somebody who has just made such an impact, and it's really a thrill to have you on. Love talking with you. Thank you very much. And here's a little bit more of Kevin Costner and Modern West as we head out. That was Kevin Costner joining us here on the Dory Monson Show. Seems like a really good, solid dude, too. Loved having him on. Okay, we got lots of getting going. He was telling me about the stories of his head. All right, we have lots more straight ahead as the Dory Monson Show rolls on. I'm holding on to Cause my heart won't No, my heart won't No, my heart just won't stop loving you I catch you in the shadows of the valley I hear the river whispering your name up letting go a long, long time ago. I've gotten used to living with the pain. There ain't no way your memories ever cut me loose. Cause my heart won't, oh my heart won't. No, my heart just won't stop loving you. Well, it's never gotten over being broken I've done everything I know to do Your memory surrounds me It's the only mountain I can move Cause my heart won't Oh, my heart won't Oh, my heart just won't stop loving you Well, it's never gotten over being broken I've done everything I know to do Your memory surrounds me The only mountain I can move So my heart won't No, my heart won't No, my heart just won't stop loving you Celebrating the life and career of Dory Monson. You're listening to the very best of the Dory Monson Show. You're listening to a celebration of the best moments in Dory Monson's show history. For more information on the life and career of our dear friend Dory, please visit MyNorthwest.com.
Well, I tell you what, our friends up at uh, Tulalip, they've been providing our show with some legends the last couple of months. We've had Robert Klein and Rita Rudner and Howie Mandel, and now the star among all those stars, Martin Short, joins us here on Cairo Radio. Martin, it's great to talk with you again. Great to talk with you. How are you doing? Fantastic. Uh, Last, I had you on uh, a year ago when you were touring with Steve Martin. How'd uh, how'd that work out for you? Well, we're continuing to do it. We're all over the place. Yeah. We now call the show, See Them Before They're Dead. (laughs) Okay. When did you and Steve Martin, because you guys have done the movies together, you toured together, when did you guys figure out that you had that that chemistry and, and wanted to be around each other that much? Well, I mean, we're very, very close friends, you know, from Three Amigos making that movie on. And uh, I guess it was 2000, I mean, uh, yeah, 2012, we were asked to close the Just for Last Comedy Festival to interview each other. And uh, that's all it was. It was just, you know, a 90-minute interview with the two of us asking questions in an audience. And we found it to be, it turned out to be very funny, and, but but mainly we were taking up but with the ease of it all and how much uh, f- fun and, and finishing each other's sentence uh, we were. And, of course, it had been, you know, a thousand dinners and sure. things like that. So uh, we did just decided to create a show with the two of us. My show is different than our show, but, you know, it's it's uh, it, it, they're equally fun yeah yeah well l- let's talk about your career because i i became such a huge fan i think i was about 21 years old when you were on sctv and it just felt like such a hip alternative to saturday night live and you guys were doing longer form stuff and right uh, what, what an amazing assemblage of talent you guys had on that show Oh, it was unbelievable. It really was. It was this kind of original thing that happened, you know, where suddenly, and the cast kind of controlled the show. We were the bosses, the inmates running the asylum expression, but it was really kind of true. And um, everyone had worked with each other and knew each other for so many years before that show from the stage and even just from life. So that there was such a great chemistry with everyone. And... Um, and uh, and again, we were given complete freedom to do whatever we wanted to do. So it was very, uh, very exciting way to work. Well, and yeah, you mentioned stage before that. It's amazing to contemplate. I know you were in that Toronto production of Godspell. Eugene Levy, Dave Thomas, Andrea Martin, Gilda Radner, Victor Garber. I mean, that what an unbelievable group of talent in a toronto production of a play that that went on to you know such stardom elsewhere i know it was um <clears throat> i you know you don't know it at the time the, the real kind of hero of that story to me was stephen schwartz who would later write wicked and and endless uh, you know things you know but um he was like 24 and he had had this show, Godspell, that had opened in New York off Broadway. It was a hit, and now they were going to do this sister company in, in Toronto. And, you know, it was like American Idol. There were a thousand people that um, uh, auditioned for it, and it, he narrowed it down to this small group of ten. Yeah. And he was 24 years old saying, oh, I think we want that kid. And he pointed to me and <laughs> Eugene Levy and Gilda and Andrea and Victor Garber and, and Paul Schaefer came in. Right. 
playing for a girlfriend, and Stephen Schwartz said, I can't stand my rehearsal pianist, but who's that guy pounding a piano like I've never heard of pounded before? So he, he hired, he said to Paul, I'll, I want to fire my rehearsal pianist, but I will, uh, and, and if you would take over, I'll make you musical director. So it was all kind of out of the movies, you know. I'd say the kid had a pretty good eye for talent. That's, yeah, he did. Yeah, yeah. And, and then, so after, so from there, FCTV, and then I remember having, you know, grown up with Saturday Night Live, there was all this talk that the franchise was dead, the Eddie Murphy group had moved on, and, man, they needed a group, a cast to save that show, and <laughs> you you were part of it. Yeah. Dick Ebersole, it wasn't Lauren, it was Dick Ebersole called it the, the George Steinbrenner year, where he <laughs> gave everyone, you know, <clears throat> four of us a one-year contract and more money than he had paid other cast members because he thought, I have to do something or I will, this show's going to get canceled. And for the first time, they hired people who had done other things. You know, Billy Crystal was already a star at that point. Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer had just done Spinal Tap. And I had been on SCTV. So it was a pretty exciting year. How stressful is it when when... That's kind of the mission. You're saving a franchise that was so groundbreaking. Because I've, I've heard from everyone I've talked to who's done the show that it's stressful even under the best of situations. But Well, I think it, 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 it's true that um, the drag of it was, in retrospect, is that when I look at people who've been there, you know, Keenan's going into his 15th year. You, when, you, when you know that, I think that Billy and I, particularly treated it like we were doing um, 22 specials. Mm-hmm. So we, we created the greater pressure even on ourselves to that because we, only, we knew we were only there for a year. Uh, you didn't feel like you could slack off or say, gee, I don't have anything this week, but that's okay, I'll be in other sketches. You felt, you know, we were there all night, always. Yeah. yeah. And, and was there the possibility of you doing more than that one year? Uh, not Really, I remember meeting with Lauren Michaels about Three Amigos, but we were suddenly now talking a lot about SNL. He hadn't committed to coming back, but he was saying, now, if we came back, and I said, and we said, I'm not coming back. And um, it just never dawned on me. You know, I'd done SCTV for three years. Now this was, and that was a lot of work. And then now I'd done SNL for a year and pulled it off by luck. And I had a new little baby, and I just kind of, I wanted to, Go to California. Yeah, try the movies. You know. Well, okay. Let's let's talk about some <laughs> of those movies because uh, my oldest daughter, Martin. I have three daughters. My oldest daughter just got engaged, and, and I'm thinking that I need to rewatch Father of the Bride. Oh, you do. Yeah, you do. That, that, it becomes like a rite of passage for a father. Yeah. Know? Well, and and I'll tell you because Steve Martin, who you you did that with, uh, when Parenthood came out. My wife was pregnant with that daughter, and I went to the theater, and I was sobbing because I was about to become a dad. And I'm afraid that Father of the Bride, Martin, is going to have that same effect on me now that uh, now that I'm about to be a father of a bride. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure it will. I'm sure it will because it's, it, it does. It's a very well-crafted movie and a very emotional movie and very funny movie. It has all those elements. You know, Nancy Myers, Charles Shire did a really brilliant job of that one. Should I should I look for wedding planners along the lines of you? 
Well, I'm not cheap, but uh, sure, go ahead. Okay. Ma- ma- but whatever you do, make it chic. <laughs> uh, so now... That's what I suggest. <laughs> so uh, now you're touring. You're going to be at Tulalip, as I said, May 26th and 27th, Martin Short. Tickets available at Ticketmaster. So uh, when you do the show solo, what, uh, what is it comprised of? Do you do a retrospective of all your characters? Well, I mean, certainly characters show up. Jiminy Glick will interview a surprise guest. Ed Grimley shows up. Frank shows up discussing who's, who has style and doesn't have style, you know. <laughs> uh, <laughs> he says, you know, that Kim Kardashian, she's a lovely girl, but she, and she, I did her wedding dress, and it was, you know, Kim wore white because she can be ironic. But she's not right. She thinks soy milk is Spanish for I am milk. <laughs> and and uh and Jiminy Glick will interview someone and, and Jackie Rogers and uh but also there's a lot of improvising. I at one point I bring three people up and turn them into the three amigos. Nice from the audience, three guys up and, and but and I you know, there's stand up and there's singing and there's film clips and there's it's like a party with Marty. It's awesome. Uh, I remember you uh right before the election. You were betting a million dollars on Hillary. How's this whole Trump thing working out for you, Martin? I would say as as bad as I thought it would be with President Trump, it's five to a hundred times worse. (laughs) Martin, it's always a pleasure talking with you. I really appreciate you coming on with me this afternoon. Thank you, Dory. All right. We have lots more to come. It's the Dory Monson Show rolls on. Thank you for joining us as we celebrate some of our favorite moments from the Dory Monson Show. Please enjoy the celebration of the life and career of Dory Monson. You're listening to the best of the Dory Monson Show.
so I, uh, for, it's a long story, but I graduated from Ballard High School when I was 15 years old and, and you know, single mom, didn't have any money, uh, nobody in my family had gone to college. So I just started community college when I was 15. And I was working at a print shop, and one afternoon I heard the Ron Bailey commercial that you guys play ad nauseum on your show. <laughs> And uh, and so I called. I, I remember this precisely. I was in the middle room of this warehouse in the print shop, and I called and I said, "Hey, how much? Uh, how much is this? How much want to be on the radio?" And the woman said, "It's thirty four ninety five." I said, "Oh, and what what do you get for thirty five dollars?" No, no, it's three thousand four hundred ninety five dollars. <laughs> Which that was nineteen seventy nine in in today's terms that's like two billion dollars, so um, so I went and they had me read a list of words that some people mispronounce, and uh, the guy said, "Well, you certainly meet our standards and even exceed some of them," and then he gave me a federal uh, aid form so I'd be on the hook for thirty five hundred bucks, and there I was. So so Sherry, it's true. Everything about it is true. <laughs> It was a nine, okay. it was a rigorous nine month course where I learned how to splice reel to reel tape together, and uh, yeah, I met a guy there who uh, was in his sixties, worked in Everett Radio. He hired me as an intern under the condition that I go to the University of Washington and get my my degree. And so I started interning at this Everett radio station. I went to the UW. I started doing play-by-play of Husky football and basketball and volleyball and baseball there. And then that got me an internship at King 5. And at King 5, they had a radio station called King 1090. And I kicked down their door and said, give me a talk show. And then Cairo bought King 1090. And they brought me over to do morning news and sports on the buzz with Pat Cashman. And then six months later, I wait, weaseled wait. my way into a two, noon to two or noon to three slot. And here I am today. Wait, hold on a second. What do you what? Huh? The what? best part of the story. Yeah. This old guy, Sherry, that was just never had two nickels to put together. Even into his late 80s and early 90s, he was still sleeping on the floor of a broken down old radio station somewhere yes. in the state of Washington. Dory knew his car by the look of the car and the sound of the car. This guy had no money whatsoever. And he hears the car coming down the road. It's at 7 o'clock at night or something like that. There's a knock it at the door. It's weird to hear you telling my story with incorrect I'm just setting facts, it up. But I'm that's just okay. setting it up. Okay, <laughs> no, go ahead. I, I, I know Where's you know cat? you think Where's you can tell cat, stories Jerry? better than anybody. <laughs> okay, so okay, please on, go no, ahead no, and tell my no, story. No, 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 no. I'm just getting you, go, just getting you going. Okay, so there's a knock at the door. Here's this old guy. He You open the door, and there's the man that has absolutely no money but all this faith in you, right? Yes. He he was a Seattle sports anchor at King 5 in the 50s and 60s. He's in the Hydroplane Hall of Fame. His name is Bill O'Mara. And, and he's the one who said, I'll make you my intern, but you have to go back to the UW. I went for one quarter, and I was out of money. I, I could not afford a second quarter. So I had I talked to him, and I said, hey, Bill, I'm, I'm sorry. I'm going to just take one quarter off, work more than full time, save money, and then I'll go back to the UW after a quarter off. And uh, it was actually 11.30 at night, his uh, KWYZ, Radio 123 in Everett. Uh, it was a Renault Lacar and came up my mom's road. I was 18 years old. And at 11.30 at night, I have no idea how he knew where I lived. He walks up, knocks on the door, and 
he and John is correct here. He slept in a sleeping bag in his mid sixties on the floor of this radio station because he didn't have two nickels to rub together. And he uh, he reached in his pocket and he peels out a, or pulls out a roll of six one hundred dollar bills, which was UW tuition at the time. And he tried to hand it to me. I said, "Bill, I can't take that." And he said, "No, no, we have a deal." And I said, "Bill, I can't take that." And he insisted that I take it. And I I went the next day on his insistence, enrolled at the UW. And then uh, shortly thereafter, I met my wife in one of my classes at the UW. And we just, uh, this summer will be our 35th anniversary. That's the reason we have the three daughters that we have. And about 15, 10, 12 years ago, somebody called me who knew that I knew Omer. And he was in a hospice up in Edmonds. And I raced up after a Friday show, and there was nobody in his room, and I held his hand. I don't know if he could hear me, but I, for about, you know, half hour, I talked. And he was in a morphine haze in the last hours. And I told him, and he knew my wife, he knew my girls, and I just thanked him for my life. Because my my wife, my daughters, my career were all because... He gave me that money to go to the UW, and I met him when at the Ron Bailey School of Broadcast when I was 17 years old. So that's the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey would say. This has been a special retrospective celebrating the life and career of Dory Monson. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. You're really a fantastic audience.